Why don't we pray? Father, thank you um, for your presence, Lord. Thank you that, um, Lord, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways than our ways. And Lord, I just pray you'd come um, now, Lord, and you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so if you were um, unclear about you got the email and you're unclear about what SOS was about. It's about the Song of Songs, which I've talked about before. Um, and if you didn't come to any of the previous ones, I'm going to recap a little bit about it um, this evening. Um, and um, I'm going to do the best I can this evening. I can't say I've honestly got this um, absolutely taped. And you'll see we're going to sort of talk about some some quite... Um, tricky, interesting, topical, hopefully, things. Um, so it's up to you to kind of pick out the um, the grain and blow away the chaff, um, because I'm sure there's going to be plenty of chaff in here, but we'll, we'll do the best we can. Um, and you can send all your questions to Salome, who <laughs> 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 will endeavor to answer them. Um, okay, so... I said I was going to um, talk about the Song of Songs, and I am, but I, the, particular, the particular topic I want to talk about is actually submission. Okay, so submission isn't a subject that um, we talk about much in church because it's, uh, it's become terribly unfashionable. Um, that's probably a mild way of putting it, because it's become associated with abuses of power, with control, with coercion, um, and especially in a gender context. Oh, deep breath. <laughs> you can see I'm going to go into all sorts of tricky things this evening. Um, but what I, I want you to, to sort of help you think about this evening is, um, uh, I suppose, what I, I can only call the, the wonder and the kind of deep comfort of true submission to a loving God um, and when properly understood to one another. But anyway, I'm going to come back to all that. So, um, first of all, just going to backtrack over the Song of Songs a little bit. Um, so, uh, just f- um, for those of you that know some of this, just um, you can check your WhatsApp or something, and, and I'm just going to go over it quickly for um, people that haven't been part of the previous ones. So you know that the Song of Songs is this mysterious little book, and it's right in the middle of the Bible, and it's, um, it's kind of about a love affair between um, two rather mysterious characters, the lover and the beloved. And it's not even really a story, it's just a series of sort of little vignettes, little stories that don't even quite link up with each other. Um, God is not mentioned in the book. Um, but as I've mentioned before, I think the song is not just um, the most overlooked, but also the most important Testament, Old Testament book for our times. So quick refresher. Um, why is that? So the reason I think it's so important is that the, the song is the principal place in Scripture where um, the most profound relationship between God and us is described. So scripture um, explains uh, God's relationship to us 
with a number of um, images. So, you know, you're, you're familiar with them all. You may just not have thought about it quite like this. But uh, God is described as a king, and we're his subjects. That's one way of looking at God. Uh, God is described as a judge, and, you know, we're either guilty or innocent, hopefully innocent. Um, God is described as our father, and we're his children. But the, the most mysterious um, relationship is the Bible describes him as our husband, or he describes himself as our husband, and us as his bride. Um, and even, even Paul kind of gets slightly stuck with this image, and he, he just says it's a profound mystery. Because everywhere in the Bible, that relationship is implied, um, you know, right back from the beginning in, in Exodus, you know, God talks about Israel as being adulterous. Well, you can't be adulterous unless you're married. You know, it's all the way through Scripture, um, but it's only explored in one place, and that's in the song. And even then, it, it can't, it's such a profound mystery that it's only described in a sort of poetic way. So as I think I said before, it's, it's a bit like perfume. It's, it's better enjoyed than analyzed. Um, but in the last couple of hundred years, it's become increasingly common and fashionable to interpret the song um, not as being about God and his love for us, but about human love, and in particular, um, uh, marriage and sex. And the result of this interpretation is that the song has effectively, in most church circles, been um, decanonized, removed from the Bible. You know, you almost never hear it preached on, and I think I've, I've said that before. Um, well, honestly, who wants to go to church on a Sunday morning and hear someone preach about sex? Well, not me. <laughs> so, um, but... My belief is that it's, it's a lack of an understanding of what you might call the eros of God, the passion of God for us, um, that has, is at the heart of um, the confusion in the church and possibly elsewhere about sex and gender. Um, I think these sex and gender are probably the, the most contentious issues of the age. So they affect all kinds of debates. Um, women's roles, men's roles in, uh, and rights in work, in politics, in sport, uh, abortion, LGBTQ issues, uh, gender reassignment. You know, you can go on and on and on. You know, these are, these are the hot-button issues of the age. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to plunge into all of those this evening. You can just take a sigh of relief. Um, And just in passing, I just think it's incredibly important for us to be super careful and thoughtful when we talk about, as the church, when we talk about these things. But anyway, I'm not going to go there this evening. What I do want to do is just sketch out a few foundational ideas that um, I hope are going to help us as we sort of think about sex and gender issues. And then I'm going to go back and look at some perspectives that come out of the song and then back to submission and a bit about Ephesians 5. Okay, deep breath. You still with me? All right, here we go. 
Oh, and the verse in, in Ephesians 5 is uh, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that. I'm probably going to make some mistakes in this talk. I'm probably going to tread on some toes. But um, please forgive me if I do. Okay? So, um, let's go right back to the beginning. Genesis. You're all familiar with Genesis 2.27. Well, you will be when I read it out to you. Uh, which goes like this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So he made us female and male in his image. So it required both sexes to properly represent God's image. So the question is, why two sexes? Why not just one to represent, to properly represent God's image? Um, so we've, I think I've, we've definitely talked before here about how part of um, God's purposes in the in the the design of creation um, is to help us better understand His nature. Let me let me explain. So um, we've talked before about how uh, God's fatherhood and Jesus' sonship were things that existed before the creation. Okay, So God was father and Jesus was son long before there were any you know, human or other fathers and sons. It's that way around. Okay? Um, and and God made the creation the way he did, e.g., you know, we're all sons and daughters of mothers and fathers, um, so that when God speaks to us about fatherhood and sonship, it's not a foreign language to us. We understand his nature by reference to his creation. That makes sense? So the creation helps us to understand him. Um, the same is true of marriage. So God's purpose in creation was to find a bride for his son. So husband and wife was something that existed in God's heart predating the creation. Okay? So God gave us human marriage as part of the order of creation in order that we could understand something incredibly deep about God. So as I was saying before, you know, Paul refers to it in Ephesians 5 as a profound mystery. You know, the end of the Bible story is the marriage of the Lamb. When God marries his creation it doesn't just change us it changes the unchangeable God got that? I mean it's really quite weird when you think about it he joins himself to his creation in marriage that's the end of the story so 
I think one of the reasons that gender issues are so contentious and contested is because they cut to the heart of the nature of God. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> so where does the where does the song fit into all this? Are you are you kind of tracking with me? Does somebody yes, got a few nods around the place. Good, excellent. Um, so as we talked about before, um, for the first 1,500, 1,800 years of the church, it was the uniform opinion of the sort of big dogs of the church. So Augustine, Athanasius, Oregon. You know, you can name all, all the kind of church major church fathers, all the big theologians, da-da-da-da-da. They all thought, actually, there's one exception. That there's a chap called Theodore of Mopsuestia who took a different view. But anyway, he is the only one. Everybody else agreed that the song was about the relationship between Jesus and our souls. Um, and as a result, it um, literally there are more commentaries on the song than any other book in the Bible. Um, and it was preached on endlessly. You know, I mentioned before, you know, Spurgeon, who was the sort of king of 19th century preachers, preached on the song more than any other book in the Bible. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux wrote 81 sermons, and that only covered the first two chapters. Um, uh, but as I said, in the last 200 years, that's all changed. But I think now, just because of some scholarship quite recently, we can now be quite confident again that the song is actually about the about Jesus and us um, and if you missed the it was really I went into this in a lot of detail in the first talk and you can find it it's on we have a, a soundcloud it's just soundcloud.com slash GIPM if you want to listen to the talk but just to recap a couple of points um, which just sort of make this totally clear there's there's um, uh, in the song, there's the lover and the beloved, um, and the Hebrew word uh, that um, the female uses of the male uh, is dowdy, um, and it's a word that's only used one other in one other place in the Old Testament, um, which is in Isaiah chapter five and verse one, which is "Let me sing of my beloved." Sorry, let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard, and it's it's quite clear that daddy in that context means God, okay? And it's the only place where that word is used. So the writer of the song is pointing us to that verse and saying, this is how you understand the song. And there's one other little one which I think is just fun, but um, the word daddy is used exactly 26 times in the Song of Songs, and the, the um, uh, Hebrew words, Hebrew letters have a... Um, uh, in Hebrew, you count in letters. And uh, the word that has the numerical value, 26, is Yahweh. Okay? So he's pointing us again and saying, the, the male character is God. Okay. Um, so why... I don't know. I'm not sure how much detail you want to do on this. Um, 
I'll just do this. I'll just do this kind of quickly. So as I said, for 1,500 years, the church saw it one way, and then it, it kind of changed. Um, let me just try and explain another another concept because it's going to be useful later. Um, there are two kinds of intimate relationship that the Bible presents at different. Uh, in, in different places. There's the friend relationship and the bride relationship. Um, you can see this illustrated very clearly in, in the Gospels where you have um, the two intimate relationships that Jesus has are with uh, John and with Mary. Okay, one is friend, one is bride. Uh, yeah, we, we, let's not go too far into that, but I, I can explain it in more detail another time if you want. Um, and they're both valid relationships, but the church has kind of swung between those two kinds of relationship over time. So in the medieval church, it was all bride. It was all very, very intimate. I mean, this is this is um, Bernard of Clairvaux on the on the first verse of the song, which is, as you'll probably remember, "Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth." And um, Bernard, this is how his his commentary on that verse starts: "I am in love." I have already received much more than I deserve, but less than I desire. I am motivated not by my head, but by my heart. It may be unreasonable to want more, but I am driven by passionate desire. I blush with shame, but love will not be denied. Love does not listen to arguments. It is not cooled by the intellect. I beg, I plead, I burn. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Wow. <laughs> so this is, this is the medieval church. It's full of... Uh, passion and intimacy. But from the sort of uh, late 15th century, um, you got the kind of rise of humanism in Europe, and um, which essentially uh, took the view that humans are very valuable and that human agency is very important as opposed to God's agency. So this is... This is um, I suppose what you might call the friend kind of relationship. So when Luther comes on the scene in, in 1520, um, we start to see completely different interpretations of the song, uh, and it's much more intellectual, much less spiritual, um, much more friend, much less bridal. Uh, Luther was basically terrified of um, anything that smacked of worship of the Virgin Mary. Um, and, you know, there were definitely good things that came out of the Reformation, um, but it was very bad for people's understanding of the Song of Songs. Um, Luther wrote a commentary on it where it was all... Basically, he thought the whole thing was about the ideal political state. Now, how you get that out of the Song of Songs, I have no idea, but he did. He doesn't even mention the idea of the church as the bride. Astonishing, but there it is. Um... And the, the, the friend type of relationship um, is, is very fruitful and it is one side of our relationship with God. But without the, the bride type relationship, I don't think it really meets our, our deepest needs. And... Um, it, it certainly hasn't as regards interpretation of the song. 
Um, so what, what the song does is it allows us to set our expectations of our relationship with God in a place that if it weren't in the Bible, we would hesitate to do. It, you know, for a long time, I personally experienced an incredibly intimate um, uh, feelings about God. And if it wasn't in the Bible somewhere, I would think this was just emotionalism or this was somehow wrong or this was somehow in error. But because I'm absolutely clear that that's what the, the Song of Songs presents, I know that it's a perfectly... It's not just a, a good place to go, it's a wonderful place to go. That, that closeness is what God desires for us, for all of us. Um, that uh, when we... What it, what it allows us to see is that God has passionate feelings for us, not just sort of cold intellectual feelings for us and that we can have passionate feelings for him and that um, when we bring our feelings into the realm of his passion our feelings get purified and we start to get more control of them I think I mentioned before um, that um, are, you, are you familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous as a as a thing? Yeah, uh, which has been it was started by Christians. It's not a Christian setup now, but it was started by Christians. And they they one of the key it's the most successful um, uh, mechanism for treating addiction by far. And uh, they have a, a concept in AA of the necessity of seeking help from a higher power. They don't talk about God uh, for all sorts of reasons. But, um, and you would think that um, submission to someone else would be something that would reduce your self-control. You're giving up control to somebody else. But what AA have found consistently since, I can't remember when they started in the 20s or 30s, I think, is that until people give up control to a higher power, they don't get control over themselves. And that when they do, they do, if you see what I mean. Um, which kind of brings us back to where we started. Um, because... Uh, Okay, let me just see if I can pull this together. Um, so the thing about the song is that it, it, um, it, in the New Testament, you have this extraordinary reshaping of gender relations. And the song kind of um, prefigures that in a, in a really interesting way. Um, so the... The prophetic books of the Old Testament are full of all the um, judgments of God against Israel's unfaithfulness. You know, you've you've probably 
sometimes wondered when you're trawling through the sort of back end of Ezekiel or Jeremiah or something, you know, how much more miserable can this get? Um, uh, what the song does is it presents a reversal of all of that. It's essentially a kind of poetic look at what the kingdom looks like. Um, and uh, if you got the, the email that I sent, you'll have seen I referenced one particular verse, uh, which is this. I am my beloved's, and upon me is his desire. Okay, and I just want to sort of think about that verse for a moment. So that, that verse occurs with three times in the song with different variations. Um, my beloved is mine and I am his. He who feeds among the lilies uh, in chapter 2. Chapter 6, um, you get, I'm my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He who feeds among the lilies. Uh, I've just repeated that verse. Oh, no, uh, he who feeds among the lilies, that is the right one. And then the, in chapter 7, I'm my beloved's and upon me is his desire. Um, and these verses all connect with... Um, the covenant formula, which is, I will be their God and they will be my people. Okay, so that's the that's the way it's put in most of the in most parts of the Bible. Um, but as you notice, the tone is in, is completely different between them. I will be their God and they will be my people. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Same same idea expressed in a completely different way. Um, so the covenant formula I will be their God and they will be my people is if you like comes from what I call the masculine or friend type of response to God while the song comes from the, the intimate or feminine principle or bride type of response to God um, so I'll give you another example Psalm 95 he is our God, we are the people of his pasture and the flock of his hand. You know that verse? In, in the song, um, it comes out like this. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies. Same idea, but a completely different feel about it. You know, the song takes the, the same idiom and gives it kind of warmth and intimacy. Um, Okay, so back to this verse. I'm my beloved's, and upon me is his desire. Um, does that remind you of any other verse? Well, this is the verse it should remind you of. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Okay, so that's the that's the curse in Genesis yeah Genesis 3:16 that is so what's intriguing is that the word used for desire there is exactly the same word as the writer of the song uses what's even more intriguing is it only occurs there in Genesis and in the song it occurs one more time in Genesis to do with with um, Cain about uh, um, uh, um, sin wanting to rule over him. But the writer of the song is making a point here. He's quoting, he's using that one word because 
um, there's a reversal going on here. Instead of uh, your desire shall be for your husband, it's I'm my beloved's and upon me is his desire. Do you see what I mean? He's put it, he's, he's put it backwards. Um, in, in Genesis, the desire of the woman for her husband results in her subjugation. Um, but in the song, the man's, the male desire is now upon her. God's desire is now upon us. So it, it's, it's not you know, super clear exactly what this means. It's not even completely clear what this kind of desire is because it's obviously, it's not sexual desire because, you know, um, in my understanding, it's not just women that desire men, but usually the problem is the other way around as far as I can make out. Um, but what it appears to be is that the author's reversing the consequences of the fall um, in the realm of gender. Um, so if we're reading the song as a love story between the creature and the creator then the author must mean something even more far-reaching than the reconciliation of the sexes he, he seems to me to be implying the restoration of the female principle in its relation to God so, um, just this may all be getting, you may be losing me here, but I'm just going to keep going a little bit. You're still with me, good. All right. So, um, have you ever wondered why it was Eve that was tempted in the garden, not Adam? Uh, so, I don't think it was. So I think, let me put it this way, it was, what I think that's about is the seduction of what I would call the female principle. This is not the seduction of the woman because women are easily tempted or something. That's not what's going on here. It's the, it's the corruption of this most precious and most intimate relationship with God. And that's why the devil chooses the woman to to get at because this is the this is the heart of the relationship between God and the creation this is the most important the most intimate thing and if if the devil can get in there then you know the male principle just sort of get I mean you know Adam's hopeless isn't he he just follows along you know there's absolutely no resistance at all you know uh So if somehow in Jesus' coming that whole thing gets reversed, then something wonderful is happening. I can't exactly tell you what, but something wonderful, something important in the relationship between 
God and his creation is happening. Something is being restored. That's about as far as I can get, okay? <laughs> I wish I could get it clearer than that, but we might come back to it another time. So um, I just want to skip over to Ephesians 5. Uh, just, just so you, Ephesians 5 is the is the passage in the New Testament that kind of um, relates to all this. It ends up, um, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am speaking about Christ and the church. Okay, so that's... But I want to go back to the beginning of that passage. Um, Because... I said I wanted to just think a little bit about submission. So that passage starts, uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, and as I said at the beginning, you know, we think of submission very negatively these days. You know, we, And I think mainly because we have a, the, the next verb, we have this very partial reading. It, it's... So he starts, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Okay. And then, you know, every, perhaps not every woman in the room, but, you know, plenty of you will be sort of throwing up your hands in horror. Yeah, I can see a few nods there. Um, (laughs) uh, But what is easy to miss is that submit to one another out of reverence for Christ also applies to the next bit, which is husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, so the, the way that men are to submit is um, the way that... So Christ submitted himself to us, his bride... He's, he submitted to us in his birth. He submitted to us in his life. And most profoundly, he submitted to us in his death. He allowed us to put him to death. And that's what love does. It submits. Um, or as the song puts it, his desire is for me. His sacrifice wasn't because he loved us in some cold way but because his passionate love for us constrained him. So, what am I saying? Um, I suppose all all I'm really saying is that um, submission first to God and then to others is the outcome of an intimate love. When we... Um, experience his intimate love then it's safe for us it feels safe safer to submit to him because submission is a is a it's a tricky thing it's a thing that requires trust and um, it's really, it seems to me, it's really only in the context of uh, knowing 
that you're passionately loved, that it feels safe to fully submit. Um, perhaps you could put it like this. You know, pride leads us to demand rigorously from others what we fancy they owe us. But submission leads us to give to others what Christ shows us we owe to them. So kindness, honour, love. Um, and you remember that James uh, says that this is the promise, that if we submit to God, you know, trust him with all that we are, both the good and the bad, and all that we have, that God will draw near to us. And honestly, what could be better than that? Well done, you survived. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so why don't we why don't we pray? Lord, I thank you that this is a profound mystery. Lord, I thank you that you you made us men and women. Lord, that you. Um, You made the creation the way it is to teach us things about you, about the intimacy of your love for us. And I pray that you'd... Um, you just shine more light on some of these things, Lord. You know they're deep and difficult things. Lord, that you'd you'd blow away the chaff and keep the keep the good stuff.